Welcome back to your spring 2020 COVID-19 American Autobiography podcast. Little talking heads for you, nothing but flowers, on this Wednesday, April 29th. Thank you so much for being with me today and for pursuing new ideas and thoughts and experiences in the midst of this ongoing uh, strange time of sameness and day after dayness. Uh, I wanted to, in this podcast, or what might perhaps become a series of podcasts, uh, address ideas about autobiography that would have been incorporated into brief lectures or talks before or after discussion times and classes if we were still meeting in class. And I want to begin with one of the, or what's usually thought of as the oldest autobiographical text, and a text that becomes a model for many others in the Western tradition. And that is the Confessions of Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, uh, Augustine of Hippo, he's sometimes called. And this is a, a very important figure in the history of Christianity, uh, born, they say, around uh, 354 AD, or in the Christian era, and uh, who lived until 430 AD, or 430 in the Christian era, so after, after the birth of uh, and the life of Christ. And St. Augustine penned this text uh, known as the Confessions, um, an autobiographical text looking back at his the history of his life, his experiences, uh, his religious experiences, his conversion ultimately to Christianity. And in his autobiography, The Confessions, it's very interesting the way that he, well, often he is speaking to God. So, this is uh, so then built into the Western European autobiographical tradition is the address to an absent other. Uh, and this is something that we can see in a number of texts we have read. And, and so, but for now, I'm going to go back to Augustine and I'm going to read a couple of passages from Augustine that, are, that have that will reflect on, on his particular uh, autobiographical bent, the way that his text is constructed. And also that speak to themes that we can see in many of the autobiographies that we've read this semester. Okay, so this is a little passage from St. Augustine's Confessions. Late have I loved thee, O Lord, and behold, thou wast within, and I without, and there I sought thee. Thou wast with me when I was not with thee. Thou didst call and cry and burst my deafness. Thou didst gleam and glow and dispel my blindness. Thou didst touched me and burned, and I burned for thy peace. For thyself thou hast made us, and restless our hearts until in thee they find their ease. Late have I loved thee, thou beauty ever old and ever new. 
Okay, so that's St. Augustine in his Confessions. And you can see how his direct address to God and his thinking of God as within himself, even uh, when he, was, he felt without God and was seeking God, uh, and that God was somehow within him at the same time, um, all that time, uh, is a very interesting idea. And it's one that, um, as I was saying, it, it, it mobilizes this rhetorical technique known as apostrophe, as spelled just like you would spell the name of the uh, punctuation mark, apostrophe. Apostrophe is an address to an absent other. And we can notice in St. Augustine, as we can see in, you know, I think, in various ways in each of the autobiographies that we'll, or autobiographical texts that we will encounter, that we'll have encountered this semester, this basic feature, a rhetorical feature of, of an address to an absent other, an imagined other audience, whether that audience is God or whether it's uh, other citizens of the United States, whether it's those who might be inclined to abolish slavery or those who are still undecided in what to do about slavery. Uh, we can, we've seen, we've encountered many texts where there is this address to an imagined other or an absent other. And we see it here with St. Augustine in his direct speaking directly to God. Here's another example of apostrophe from a 20, 21st century text, Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, page 24. The narrator is recounting the story of her marriage with Harry on the eve of California passing a now outdated law preventing what was then being referred to as same-sex marriage. Maggie Nelson writes, Reader, we married there with the assistance of Reverend Lorelei Starbuck. The invocation, reader, that address to the reader, and reader, we married there, is again an example of apostrophe, uh, an address to an absent other. In this case, interestingly enough, it's also echoing a f famous pre-existing text in the Western tradition, uh, the English tradition, specifically Jane Eyre, and without going into too long of a digression, readers who are familiar with Jane Eyre will remember that Jane Eyre, which is a novel by Charlotte Bronte, published around, I think, 1803 or thereabouts, uh, Jane Eyre was originally published as an autobiography, and the author, Charlotte Bronte, uh, cognizant of the fact that books by men were uh, more popular in the marketplace than books by women, wrote under a pseudonym, Currer Bell, and published, published it was, so it was Jane Eyre, an autobiography by Currer Bell. <laughs> and this was, in fact, actually Jane Eyre, a novel by Charlotte Bronte. So sort of inverting the, uh, we've, we're familiar with autobiographies where people are writing under pseudonyms, fugitive texts like uh, slave narratives, of course, there being one famous example. In this case, we have a novel being published under a pseudonym because the real name of the author might result in, and, and, being, and a novel being sold under the guise of autobiography to increase the intrigue and interest in the text and published under a, a, a male author's name in order to better play the literary marketplace. Uh, so, but also, uh, why is this a reference to Jane Eyre? Because famously, toward the end of the text of Jane Eyre, 
our narrator Jane is explaining her marriage to a uh, sort of disgraced um, and emasculated Lord Rochester. And Rochester, uh, it's Rochester she is speaking of when she writes in, I believe, the last chapter or thereabouts. Uh, the chapter begins, Reader, I married him. Another example of the use of apostrophe coming from a text in the autobiographical tradition, even though it was published as a novel. And here being invoked again in a kind of in, an, in the form of this apostrophic, if that's a word, apostrophe that is appealing to the reader. Um, and Maggie Nelson then, in her own voice, with put quotations around that because what that means might be becoming uh, less and less clear. But in her own voice, also invoking the voice of the narrator of Jane Eyre. Now, when it comes to apostrophe. I suppose at this point, you might be thinking, well, so what? Uh, okay, so this is a common device at work in autobiographies. But one of the interesting things about it is that it's also indicative for some of one of the curious things about subjectivity, that is one of the curious things about imagining a self. And that is that it seems that perhaps it is impossible to imagine a self without constructing uh, imaginary relationships to others. All right, welcome back. That musical interlude brought to you by Madlib. We're thinking about the ways in which uh, the autobiography is constructed out of time and history and um, the, the very particular local context of uh, the, the pressing upon the writer at the time of uh, the text's composition, uh, as well as the ways in which on a psychological level, the psyche or the mind or uh, the self is constructed in relation to others in the you know in childhood, in infancy, um, and then this self and other dynamic is also being played out in the text of the autobiography itself in the mode of, of often of apostrophe or an address or an appeal uh, speaking to an absent other. Now, as for this, these dynamics of autobiography, as we look back at St. Augustine, his autobiography has so many little features that are really charming and remarkably uh, uh, provocative, I think, even to this day. He begins his confessions, which are also a declaration of God's greatness. And the word confession, I think going back to the Latin, has something to do with avowing or declaring um, the goodness of God, the greatness of God. And uh, so that's part of, part of his uh, effort in his confessions is to marvel upon the uh, uh, greatness and the power and the, the um, uniqueness and extraordinary infinite qualities of God and at the same time revealing his own limitations and his, his sins and and imperfections so St. Augustine 
begins his confessions with like six chapters or so or um, of uh, direct address to God. Here is a little sample from Book 1, Chapter 2 of St. Augustine. Again, beginning with this long opening prayer and direct address to God. St. Augustine writes, And how shall I call upon my God, my God and my Lord? For when I call on him, I ask him to come into me. And what place is there into me into which my God can come? How could God, the God who made both heaven and earth, come into me? Is there anything in me, O Lord my God, that can contain thee? Do even the heaven and the earth which thou hast made, and in which thou didst make me, contain thee? Is it possible that, since without thee nothing would be which does not exist, thou didst make it so that whatever exists has some capacity to receive thee? So, for St. Augustine, coming into self-understanding is also sort of hand-in-glove, part and parcel of the same process of coming to know God. And the two are completely intertwined, inextricably linked, is the cliche that we could invoke here. Augustine also, though, speculates on the parts of his life that he cannot remember. He writes, I am loath to dwell on this part of my life, uh, of which I have no remembrance, about which I must trust the word of others, and what I can surmise from observing other infants. For it lies in the deep murk of my forgetfulness, and thus is like the period which I passed in my mother's womb. See now, I pass over that period, for what have I to do with the time from which I can recall no memories? And this musing about the time of his life, of which he has no memories, and in a time before photography and film and so on, I think is is remarkable. Uh, I, pictures, it's possible that pictures and film give us an unrealistic uh, idea that we remember things that we do not. And I love this moment when Augustine is reflecting on, you know, as he's trying to tell the story of his life, the part of his life that he cannot recall and and inscribe into his text uh, that of his, his earliest infancy and, and his birth and uh, the first couple years of his life. And Augustine also, uh, most maybe uh, most famously in terms of 20th century philosophy, or for at least for those who are entertained by the works of Ludwig Wittgenstein, Augustine speculates about the learning of language. And this is in chapter 8 of book 1. Um, my infancy did not go away, for where would it go? It was simply no longer present. I was no longer an infant who could not speak, but now a chattering boy. I remember this, and I have since observed how I learned to speak. My elders did not teach me words by rote, as they taught me letters afterward, but I myself, when I was unable to communicate all I wished to say to whomever I wished by means of whimperings and grunts and various gestures of my limbs, which I used to reinforce my demands, I myself repeated the sounds already stored in my memory by the mind which thou, O oh my God, hast given me. When they called something by name and pointed it out while they spoke, I saw it and realized that the thing they wished to indicate was called by the name they then uttered. 
And what they meant was made plain by the gestures of their bodies, by a kind of natural language common to all nations, which expresses itself through changes of countenance, glances of the eye, gestures and intonations, which indicate a disposition and attitude, either to seek or to possess, to reject or to avoid. So it was that by frequently hearing words in different phrases, I gradually identified the objects which the words stood for, and having, performed, having formed my mouth to repeat these signs, I was thereby able to express my will. Those of you who have been reading The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson will hopefully recognize the name Ludwig Wittgenstein. It's uh, what the philosopher that Nelson's narrator refers to at the very beginning of the text. And Wittgenstein begins his uh, famous, uh, one of his famous philosophical works, Philosophical Investigations, uh, that is how it's translated in English, written in German, uh, with this example from Augustine of the way that Augustine remembers learning language in his autobiography. And Wittgenstein uses it as an example of the way that we imagine language to work, uh, quote-unquote natural language, as Augustine says. And it provides Wittgenstein with a number of uh, uh, examples or, or um, models to use in proceeding uh, to through a number of inquiries about the nature of language or, and how we use language and, and how much uh, language can actually uh, tell us about the world uh, and how, how good it is at, at holding on to um, consistent sets of ideas or, or truths, you might say. And what are we doing when we practice language and what kinds of philosophical uh, games are we playing? What kind of language games are we playing when uh, we use things like uh, the names of colors and so on? All of these, all of these uh, inquiries in, in Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations begin with, the, the text actually begins with this very quotation from Augustine's autobiography and then proceeds through a number of inquiries. And I want to read uh, just one of those inquiries. Ultimately, Wittgenstein questions whether Augustine has really described language. So, for example, this is just from the very beginning, uh, uh, point number three in Philosophical Investigations. Wittgenstein writes, Augusti Augustine, we might say, descri does describe a system of communication. Only not everything that we call language is this system. And one has to say this in many cases where the question arises, is this an appropriate description or not? And the answer is, Yes, it is appropriate, but only for this narrowly circumscribed region, not for the whole of what you were claiming to describe, not for the whole of language. It is as if someone were to say, a game consists in moving objects about on a surface according to certain rules. And we replied, well, you seem to be thinking of board games, but there are many others. You can make your definition correct by expressly restricting it to those games. But, Wittgenstein implies, what language does goes far beyond those games. Here uh, are some of the other things that Wittgenstein says about language when he starts thinking beyond it as a successful description of a very limited language game of the kind that, uh, that, that St. Augustine imagines when he imagines his own acquiring of language. Uh, 
Wittgenstein says uh, one point, uttering a word is like striking a note on the keyboard of the imagination. Later he says that to imagine a language means to imagine a life form. Sitting here in limbo But I know it won't be long Sitting here in limbo Like a bird without a song Well, they're putting up resistance But I know that my faith will lead me on All right, so a little musical interlude for you Jimmy Cliff, sitting in limbo. We're thinking about this trajectory of the autobiography from uh, reaching back into the tradition all the way to Augustine in, in the Western tradition. Augustine's opening prayer addressed to God on the way to telling his own life story, his recognition that there are parts of his life he cannot remember, his curious description of the learning of language, learning the names for things by the watching and pointing and the saying aloud, hearing the voice, seeing the object, and this model returning to us in the 20th century in the ruminations of the famous and, and very influential philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein turning again to Augustine to imagine how a language might be established. And at the same time, using Augustine's model of language to suggest that language is yes, that, and a lot more. And the part that's a lot more is murky and curious and also fascinating and fantastical and perhaps uh, can give us a world, a life form, allow us to imagine a life form. And then to making this leap that to imagine a language, as Wittgenstein says, is to imagine a life form. I wonder if it can be said the other way around, to imagine a life form is to imagine a language. Either way, Wittgenstein returns to us in Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, when she ruminates at the beginning of the text on the possible limitations of language. I'm going to leave my discussion for a moment of these uh, ruminations on language, the learning of language, and the relation to the autobiography to speak now, I'm just to, turning slightly, and as I, as I move through these different ways of conceiving of the texts that we've been reading and of uh, the, uh, the autobiography as a genre, I want you to uh, think about the difference between a world and the world. And this came up, uh, Gabrielle had raised the question in, in one of our classes recently uh, with regard to Srikanth Reddy's Voyager. 
And I'm returning to that idea now to suggest that one of the ways of thinking about a particular literary genre or even a single piece of literature or a single text is to think of the text as presenting a world if read from a certain perspective, and then if read from a slightly different perspective, also presenting a world, but those worlds being um, in certain specific ways a little bit different. And to think of a text as offering these layers or slices of worlds, of ways of thinking of the world. And you can notice that it might also be possible to do this with your own world or your own narrative, um, your own life story if you think of telling it with one particular theme in mind for example your religious uh, education if you've had a religious education or if you've had a spiritual tradition that you've grown up with or to think of you your life story from an educational perspective the different varieties of schooling that you might or might not have received and so on and so forth that would be another way of telling of presenting a world uh, or imagining a life form. Now in terms of the world of autobiography, I want to turn now to another landmark text in the Western European tradition, that being the Confessions of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, also published as the Confessions, but his name often is added to the title to distinguish his confessions from those of Augustine. Rousseau's Confessions, completed, I think, around 1769-1770, published uh, ultimately in 1782, is a remarkable and groundbreaking text. It's the text that inaugurates a new uh, cycle of autobiographical works in the 19th century, including soon there, soon after, for example, Thomas, not soon, but about four decades later, Thomas de Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Uh, also, William Wordsworth's uh, The Prelude, very long autobiographical poem, uh, are a couple of examples. In the American tradition, in the 19th century, we've already talked about slave narrative. It's important to add the examples of Walt Whitman's Song of Myself and the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, two famous examples of autobi 19th century autobiographical uh, texts. Also, you could add uh, uh, Henry David Thoreau's Walden, uh, to that list, and even the poetry of Emily Dickinson. So the 19th century, as I as I have said many times, is often pointed to, and 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 romanticism in the 19th century often held up as the moment when autobiography really begins to sediment itself in place as a recognizable genre. Rousseau's Confessions are considered to be the inaugural text in that romantic tradition of autobiography. A graphical writing. Now, Augustine, of course, is able to articulate his life as part of his becoming Christian and his developing a dialogue and an understanding with, a, with his God. And the text is, of course, addressed to that God. But there's also a letter from Augustine uh, addressed to um, another scholar. But Augustine is not only writing to God, um, he's also aware of his audience. And 
Uh, contemporary editions of Augustine's Confessions often include his letter to Darius, where he is introducing, uh, he's sending a copy of his confessions of the te text of his book to Darius, and he's uh, commenting on the text itself and how popular it has been with many of his readers. So he very he's very much aware of his contemporary audience at the, at the same time that he's addressing God. Rousseau's confessions are different. Uh, he concerns himself with a lot of gossipy details and feeling states when he's describing his, his early experiences. Uh, there's a sort of a sociological element to his text, um, describing the, the class status and the various uh, jobs that he has and his relationships with various well-known uh, people in France and so on and so forth. Um, but also there is a stance that is presented in Rousseau's autobiography that's quite uh, dramatic. And I'm going to read you just the very opening lines of his autobiography, which are very famous, and, and perhaps you'll see why. Here begins Rousseau's, book one of Rousseau's Confessions. Rousseau writes, I have entered upon a performance with his, which is without example whose accomplishment will have no imitator. I mean to present my fellow mortals with a man in all the integrity of nature, and this man shall be myself. I know my heart and have studied mankind. I am not made like anyone I have been acquainted with, perhaps like no one in existence. If not better, I at least claim originality. And whether nature did wisely in breaking the mold with which she formed me can only be determined after having read this work. Whenever the last trumpet shall sound, I will present myself before the sovereign judge with this book in my hand, and loudly proclaim, Thus have I acted, these were my thoughts, such was I. With equal freedom and veracity I have related what was laudable or wicked. I have concealed no crimes, added no virtues. And if I have sometimes introduced superfluous ornament, it was merely to occupy a void occasioned by defect of memory. I may have supposed that certain, which I only knew to be probable, but never have asserted as truth a conscious falsehood. Such as I was, I have declared myself, sometimes vile and despicable at others, virtuous, generous, and sublime, even as you have read my inmost soul, power eternal, assemble round your throne an innumerable throng of my fellow mortals. Let them listen to my confessions. Let them blush at my depravity. Let them tremble at my sufferings. Let each in his turn expose with equal sincerity the failings, the wanderings of his heart. And if he dare claim I was better than that man. And so Rousseau begins his autobiography with this challenge to the reader, this direct confrontation, in which he is also saying, and of course he's still alive while writing, but he's also imagining a future when with the text that he is ostensibly involved in writing, he will appear before God to be judged. And he will be judged in accordance with the text that he is writing. In, and so, oddly, there's a way in which he is saying that the text, that the stories, the narratives that he is now, that he is creating of his life, his life will then um, 
be judged against. In other words, he, will, he, he would then have to live out his life by the tenets of his text in order for the life to be judged as a, a righteous one. The other notable thing about Rousseau's introduction to his autobiography is that, note that he says that if he is not actually better than anyone else in existence, at least he is original. As he says, I am not made like anyone I have been acquainted with, perhaps like no one in existence, and if not better, I at least claim originality. The myth of originality is a common one that it will appear again and again in romantic texts and in idealist and idealistic conceptions of what writing is what and what art is. It's a persistent theme. And here we see Rousseau claiming it, declaring it as one of his, uh, as a virtue and as one of his highest values. The fact that he's writing uh, his confessions is certainly not original, and many, many of the, uh, many other aspects of his text are not original either, um, but nonetheless, there it is. Okay, brief recap. We've looked at Augustine, apostrophe, uh, the invocation of an absent other, the articulation of itself in and through an other as a crucial trope in autobiography. We have noted that uh, also there's a series of uh, essays on autobiography and self-image on Blackboard. These would include Philip Lejeune's On Autobiography, where he spends a consider considerable amount of time reflecting on the role of the name and the relationship to a, a living, breathing person to a name, the name's relationship to the first person, I, in the narrative, and the alignment of each of these components as one of the features, uh, one of the prominent features of the genre of autobiography. We have Lacan reflecting on the idea of self-image and this uh, sort of foundational scene in of the uh, foundational staging of the psyche and the relationship to self-image, which is which he imagines as this this infantile stage uh, or uh, toddler stage, where a child barely able to hold itself up nonetheless begins to reckon, recognize its own image in a mirror, and the disconnect between the discombobulated body that the in, that the toddler is in versus the composed image in the mirror becomes a model for a slight for a disconnect between imagined self image or an image of self and how we f actually feel in our own bodies that will last for for many of us perhaps for for all of us for a lifetime so that's Lacan, the essay on the mirror stage. And then we have uh, Paul Deman, uh, a, a critic associated with deconstruction, who's looking at autobiography and says, actually, what we have here is defacement. What the autobiography is, is an animation of, an of, of in, a, in essence, a tombstone-like persona that is, will be frozen in the text for... Uh, for futurity's sake. And that's something that a number of the autobiographies that we've read seem very much aware of. 
So, for example, while Ben... Benjamin Franklin is addressing his son. He's also addressing an imagined public. Even Augustine, while he's addressing God, is also giving his example of these conversations and these dialogues that he's having with God and with the scripture as uh, an example for his readers. We've also looked at fugitive texts, texts that have uh, been known in the past as slave narratives, and we have writers who have adopted names and who have to inhabit a false self in effect, um, but whose original selves also were never uh, actually had any protected rights or were not even recognized by the state as fully human. And so uh, these are writers who are writing from quite a different place, it would seem, but for whom the articulation of a self in the text is also a significant challenge and an issue, just as it has been for Augustine. And then I've remarked on the fact that both, especially in slave narrative and also in Asada and also in the Argonauts and also in Joe Brainerd, there's an urban attraction. There's an attraction to the anonymity of the crowd and the city that will provide a background into which the subject can uh, meld themselves can disappear into that background, into the crowd, and that that's a vital aspect of urban life that is remarked upon by both Frederick Douglass, uh, by Harriet Jacobs, and also by Asada. And it's also in the background in terms of Joe Brainerd's autobiography, and by the way he and Asada both sharing in Greenwich Village as a a site for that uh, dissolving or, or into the background or into a subculture, and as a place where that where certain uh, alternative sexualities and identities can flower. In class on Wednesday, the 29th, I remarked on the fact that this is the phenomenon of 19th century industrialization leading to cities where people can disappear into the city, can leave old identities behind and form new ones, is a vital aspect in the, in the history of 19th century literature. And it's something that plays into Foucault's The History of Sexuality and writers like Gail Rubin, some of the pioneers of queer theory and gender theory who looked at the ways in which cities are able to foster communities where alternative sexual identities can flourish. Another example from the 19th century of this interest in the city is Walt Whitman and Song of Myself, where uh, he says of himself, I contain multitudes, and the identity of the poet is reflecting back and in and through the figures of the crowd and the cityscapes that he's describing. I'm going to leave it there, pick it back up with another podcast sometime soon. Here is John Lennon, isolation for your quarantine blues. Thanks so much for listening. It made. Don't they know we're so afraid? Isolation. We're afraid to be alone. Everybody got to have a home. Change the whole wide world